Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics, and we ask that you use your own discretion when listening or that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we're talking about social media and its influence on identity and eating disorders with Dr. Shauna Frisbee, who's joining us from Lubbock, Texas. Shauna is a licensed professional counselor, approved supervisor for licensed professional counselors. She's a certified eating disorders specialist and a national certified counselor. She's taught psychology, family studies, and counseling since 2001, and is currently a professor of clinical mental health counseling at Lubbock Christian University. She's been in private practice specializing in treating eating disorders and trauma for the past 20 years. In her psychotherapy practice, she integrates phototherapy techniques in working with identity difficulties commonly experienced by those with trauma and or eating disorders. She believes that the rise of social media has dramatically shifted the way many people perceive and construct their identity, and therefore that visual content can no longer be excluded from therapy. Her phototherapy work is described in her 2020 book, A Therapist's Guide to Treating Eating Disorders in a Social Media Age. Shauna, we are so grateful that you're here today to spend some time with us and talk about these very interesting areas that we're going to dive into today. So thanks so much for joining us. Oh, Jillian, thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. Absolutely. Let's um, let's start, Shauna, with tell us a little bit about your interest in photography and other visual content, and how this this personal interest aligned with a professional interest in your exploration of eating disorders and social media. Well, probably you have to start a little further back than before I started doing therapy, because I've really been interested in photography probably since around you know late high school years and. Just kind of fell into it, you know, like many people do. We have the point and shoot cameras, and we're taking pictures of our friends and things we go do. And you know, it was that era when it was really easy for the first time for people to really take photos of other people. And so I just got into it in that way. And um, then, as I moved into my young adult years, really in college, I got into photography more on more of an artistic level, but really didn't know what I wanted to do with it. It was, it was just something I loved doing. So I was taking classes in college, extra classes in photography. So in those, I got into developing and that was a very kind of a miraculous process for me to see that develop and to be able to manipulate the photos and, and then to begin to think about how photos impact us as we look at them. And that's really where I think this grew from because I was kind of this person who was so into it, but also wanted to read a lot behind it. And there were writers that were now beginning to talk about, like, we have this culture where we're taking pictures of ourselves all of the time. And what does that mean for us? And, and, you know, how does that impact us? Because it was so new in some ways, not necessarily in that era when I was young, but in the generations leading up to me to where people actually could take pictures rather than having these very formal portraits taken of them you know, but not many people had very many photos of themselves. And so, you know, I was developing and, you know, I always kind of laugh. I had an apartment that had a little room that was a laundry room with, with washer dryer hookups, but I didn't really care about that, you know, at that stage. So I turned it into a dark room. And so it was just really something I enjoyed doing. And, um, you know, as I, as I understood this, I really began to think about how we record these life events and these milestones. And then when I got into therapy work, 
as a therapist. It just really grew out of that. It was clients would bring these photos in to my office. Sometimes I wouldn't even know they were bringing them in, but they might, you know, come in with a handful of snapshots that are, you know, this is my family. This is me when I was a kid. And we would look at those and we would talk about them. You know, I would ask them questions about them. And I had read a book on, on phototherapy. So I began to use that as a guide. Let me, let me kind of think about, you know, what I want to do with this. Because to me, I was seeing them like expressing their life through these stories and trying to make sense of things that had happened to them. And looking at this photo of themselves as a child and saying, this is me when I was in this age. And so I think that really grew very organically for me to begin doing phototherapy. But then we had social media that hit. And, you know, when it hit, we had just so many more opportunities for clients to bring these photos in. And so now, instead of, you know, bringing in these photos, they're bringing in their phone, but they're not even thinking about, oh, I'm going to show her this photo, but they would be talking. And they would say, oh, I have a photo of this. I have, I have this on my phone. Let me show you. And so it got so much easier for people to bring photos in because most people carry them with them all the time. And that just represents where we came from. Oh, we went to in years and years ago, we went to these formal places and had our photo taken. And then my generation, we have a camera, but you have to take it with you. So it's kind of an event. And now everybody has a camera with them all the time. We just don't think about how revolutionary that was for us to do that. And so, you know, I really began to explore at a deeper level how photos are different for us than when we read something. So that was kind of this, just a big shift in my way of thinking about it. And so I was doing this in my practice for a good number of years. I've probably been looking at photos almost since I've been in practice, but it became more of a intentional purpose where at times I would have assignments or I would ask them to bring things in. So we, we worked together on these. And, you know, as, as you said, I do a lot of eating disorder work. It's, it's the majority of my work, that and trauma. And, um, you know, I would have young people that would come in and they would talk about how their social media was such a negative thing for them. And some of them would delete their accounts. They would say, I just deleted all my accounts because we would have these conversations about deleting their accounts or how they were going to deal with this. But they wouldn't tend to do that for a long period of time because then they're just out of the social realm. I mean, you know, I'm not, I don't know what's going on with my friends. And so many of them were struggling with how do they adjust, how do they deal with this. And so it was, it was very much a personal interest that then just became a part of what I do with my clients. Um, I just knew we had to address these images. We couldn't ignore what they were being impacted by. And, um, you know, I think about how much images are our language now. And, um, yeah, so that's how it, it all kind of started. That's so fascinating. I, I mean, it's so interesting how that I can sort of completely see that path. One of the things that's struck me as you're talking about it, and, and, and I guess we'll, we'll maybe talk a little bit about this as we go, but when you used to have to bring in the photographs, you had the photograph as it was taken and developed, and that's what it was, right? Now, when you pull out the phone, that photograph can be 
so easily filtered and manipulated and enhanced and changed right there. And so even the, it adds even more, I think, to the real-time aspect of having the photo, but it's not even the photo as the photo was taken. It's not even the, the experience as the photo was taken. It's often, or it can be, another version of that experience as the photo was taken. So I was thinking about the concept of filters and editing as well as you were talking, but it sort of goes into my next kind of curiosity. You know, the, the research on social media is still relatively young and social media is still young, but we're certainly starting to learn more about it from various fields around some of its unanticipated effects, both positive and, and potentially negative. Uh, there's a lot more dialogue about social media. There are documentaries being made about it. There's a lot more research being sort of digging into this into this area. So I think there's a lot for us to learn. But from your perspective, sort of what, with where we are now, how how would you describe how social media impacts our identity? In so many ways that it's even hard to narrow it down. But when I think about the majority of people who are really struggling with identity are young, young adults, let's say from the beginning of adolescence through even in, you know, well, we know even into adulthood, but certainly with these younger people. And it's also the time where they have the most social media use. Those are the highest users of social media are young people. And so while they're trying to do this identity search, they're also in it constantly. And so I always think about like, how can it not impact them? How, you know, it, there's just no way. And so I think about like central task of identity. Um, I've taught human development for a long time. And I think so very simply, if we think about identity, it's like, who am I? How am I different from other people? But also, how do I fit in with other people? So it's this, this kind of balance of figuring out, I'm, I'm, I want to be unique, I want to be me, but I also want to fit in, I want to belong. It's so important. And so when we think about everything that goes on on social media, we think, oh, so we have these individuals who are really trying to figure out who they are. And we get most of our information about who we are from our interactions with other people from the time we're very young. But when we hit those adolescent years, it is certainly really heightened because we are more likely to interact and want to interact with our peers. So we're getting all this, this feedback from our peers as we interact with them. And it really tells us how we fit into the, the larger world outside our family. Kids get so much of their information from the family. But then we go to school, we get a little bit more from other people. And then adolescence hits and they're like, oh, these people are so important to me. Most of us can think back to that particular age when, when we just felt like our friends were everything. And um, so I think about social media being so different now because it is not necessarily face to face. It is through this medium that is oftentimes asynchronous. We don't necessarily talk and see each other's facial expressions. We're not communicating. You know, you talk, I talk, you talk, I talk. That happens on social media, but it's, it's in like, I'm posting this and then you're commenting on it. And then maybe you come over and comment it on later. And then, or we do a Snapchat where I send you this, you know, little thing, or I send you, you know, a, a TikTok video. I post a TikTok video and you go on and like it and see that. So it's very different from that face-to-face -face interaction. So what that's meaning is that, and this is not necessarily, I guess it is how social media affects it, but not directly. 
we do everything on social media. So we don't, or even either on our phones anyway, even if we don't consider it social media. So it's not like I get that even doing tasks like ordering food or, you know, those tasks I do. I'm not really getting a lot of practice in doing that. And so, you know, we don't think about taking all this information in about how other people are perceiving me, but that's what we're constantly doing. And so it's just very different. And so one of the things that we're seeing for a lot of our young people now is they feel a great sense of disconnect. You know, they, if you read some of our headlines uh, periodically, you'll see that they'll talk about us being in a loneliness epidemic. And I think in many ways we are. And so while people's lives are 24-7, they feel like they always have to be connected. They don't feel connected to other people. So I think that's one of the huge ways that it's impacting us. And for young people, even developing those skills, those relational skills and, you know, the ability to communicate with other people. Um, So they are getting their information from really large groups now. And the information can be incredibly toxic. So, you know, we are now thinking about, like, I'm not only having my peer group, but I have anybody in the world I could connect with. And I'm looking at all this information. And some of this information is telling me you need to be a certain way to be accepted. And oftentimes, as we know, as you mentioned, a lot of these versions of what we're seeing are very edited. They're not very realistic. But young people don't have the ability to discern that. And so it becomes their reality. This is how I should be. And so the identity search is taking place on social media now, but it's so different than what we've had before. I mean, it's always been a difficult time, those early years that are now really extended even into the adult years further than what a lot of people would actually think. You know, we, we, some of our old models of development would say identity is pretty well done. It's jailed by about 18. And we all know that is not true. (laughs) And so I have all these young people and you have all these young people in your life and what they're seeing on social media is about consumerism. It's like what you have and what image can you portray? So they're, they're trying to do that and they're learning that I can put this image out there with a photo of me, for example, but I can change it. And so some of the message they're getting is that your, your very identity shifts and you can just make it it's very fluid. And so it's, that's very hard to grasp too, that, oh, I'll just post some other photos of myself. And so we're seeing that as a real difficulty. We're seeing a lot of difficulty with appearance standards. And this is where a lot of the eating disorder work really tied in for me as I was working with my clients because they're seeing people on social media and oftentimes they're not very realistic portrayals of life. In fact, they're the idealized version. We know that. And they are, they are edited. And so they have these standards that they feel like that they need to live up to. And, you know, now we think about social media influencers. And these are like normal people. They're not celebrities because that's been around for a long time. You know, celebrities and thinking, oh, you know, they're so attractive, whatever. But now these are like, like normal people who've made it big. And it kind of tells them if I can just reach these standards, I might be able to make it big as well. And um, so they don't really filter out really very well about what's going on in these people's lives. They just see the glory and everybody really being drawn to them and the number of followers they have, you know, that whole word, I've got all these followers that, you know, think I'm really great. And so 
achievement is signified by can I have this appearance that's going to get other people to follow me, to like me, to give me approval. And um, that's huge for, for young people now and trying to meet that standard. So identity is very narrowed sometimes. It's about do I fit these standards, these cultural standards? And then, of course, we have this social media phenomenon of people liking things. I like this. Let me put my like on it. And we have to think about what that means because what, what we see is that if I'm going to put something up, I need to get other people to verify it. But we can also get a lot of negative feedback. And that can be very, very harmful. I, I talk about something in my book that I had heard on a podcast years ago, not years and years, but, you know, relatively years ago. And it was a podcast focusing on some young teen girls who were talking about transitioning into high school and how they were um, interacting on social media. And what they were talking about in there is this idea of I have to go on and like everybody's post because if I don't like what they post, then that's like I have just done a really negative thing in the friendship realm. In other words, if my friends post, I'm obligated to like. And so when we do that, they're asking them, oh, well, how does that make you feel? Oh, well, it makes me feel really good when other people like my post. And they don't seem to see the discrepancy that they're posting out, they're liking out of obligation, but yet they're getting affirmation from people liking their post. That's just incredible. I'm just sort of giggling, thinking about that. You're absolutely right, that what we experience coming towards us is different than what we think about moving towards somebody else in so many ways. Uh, I had this, this thought while you were describing that so beautifully was that, you know, a long, long, long time ago, we used to write each other letters, right? We'd write letters and we put it in the mail and, and, and then you'd get a letter and then you'd read it and then you'd write a letter back. It was like the ultimate, like the, the, you know, the quintessential asynchronous communication that you'd have to wait for these letters. And so that formed our identity and our information of, of the world in a certain way. And then we got, you know, the magic of being able to pick up a, a device and talk to somebody over a telephone. And, and so that sped up that communication and made it more synchronous. And we've just sort of been on incredible fast forward from there. Right now, we just pop on, put something out there light it just just right, filter it just right, wear the right color, stand against the right background, position the camera in just the right way, put on a couple of filters, you know, make it a different thing than it actually was and put it out there and wait for the likes. And, and it's asynchronous, but it's so much more socially engineered asynchronicity that is fascinating. And I think you're, you're absolutely right that that identity piece for adolescence has really become so much more multidimensional that it's not just a, a you know a single dimension or you know mailing things back and forth or talking to somebody over the phone it's become this incredible depth of interaction and identity formation i'm curious as you as you think about all oh, there's so many rich pieces in here to think about how is it important to think about identity when we're thinking about eating disorders and the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and how that sort of shows up with people with eating disorders? Well, uh, that's a very broad question and I think a really good, kind of a set of questions, really good questions. We know from some of the research that's been done on eating disorders that 
having difficulty with identity is a precursor to developing an eating disorder. And so we can just think, okay, if I have a lack of identity, which most adolescents do, and that's why it's the highest risk time, but also among those groups of adolescents and young adults, there are some that are especially at high risk. And so we think about like, what are, what's going on for them? Why are they so high risk? And of course, you know, again, very common knowledge about what goes on in adolescence gives us some clues as to why we have so many eating disorders. There are just so many physical changes that occur and they're out of our control. You know, it's, it's a very fast physical change during those few years. And it takes us a while to get a grasp on that and, and I would say get a comfort level with those changes. And so we have those changes that are physical. And then we also have these social changes with this really big focus on peers. And puberty also brings on other things other than those physical changes. It brings on this attraction to the opposite sex or, or however we may manifest that. And when we have that attraction, that's a huge emphasis on physical appearance again. And so we have to think about all these vast changes that are occurring for these individuals and how they get overwhelmed and the thinking abilities are really changing. So they're gaining the ability to understand that other people are having thoughts and think about what other people are thinking is a way to think about it. And that brings so much insecurity and anxiety. And so here we have this period when they're very likely to try and find coping mechanisms to deal with a lot of what's going on, but they don't have the skills to do so. And their world is changing so quickly. And so we have to think about all of our identity is tied into all of these things. Our identity is tied into physical aspects. Our identity is tied into the cognitive aspects of just how we view ourselves in that domain. You know, students will oftentimes, young people will be talking about, you know, I'm not very smart or that's, I'm really good at, at that kind of stuff, but I'm not good in sports. And so they're looking at all of this in terms of this is my identity, how I'm able to relate to people. And what we think about is, is they're struggling. We have a subgroup there that are struggling so much more because their identity has already in some way been hampered. That development has been hampered. And one of the risk factors for developing an eating disorder and having identity issues is that if you grew up in a family, for example, that created trauma, you had trauma early on, or your family had a lot of adverse experiences, you actually very early on have some difficulties with identity because that's where the early identity comes out of. Those interactions with parents and siblings and other family members, kind of our smaller group. And so if that was difficult, then your identity is already a, a little bit hindered or hampered in that way. And so as we enter adolescence, we're going to see even more problems. I mean, eating disorders are so multifaceted. There's so many underlying causes from genetics to family dynamics. And we have to look at all of this and realize, okay, so here we come into adolescence and we have maybe some genetics going on and we have some family factors going on. And now I'm here in adolescence and I've got all of these changes and I'm really having a difficult time trying to figure out who I am and how I fit in with other people. And um, oftentimes, because of this identity struggle being very, very difficult, 
individuals will begin to focus on something that society tells us to focus on to solve all problems, and that should be your physical appearance. So you focus on your weight, focus on your body. You know, if you can take care of that, then perhaps everything will be okay. And there's a ton of emotional components where adolescents are walking oftentimes emotional dramas. I mean, they just, emotions are very strong in adolescence. And so they're trying to deal with that as well. Oftentimes an eating disorder is a way that kind of addresses all of those things. And, you know, it addresses these concerns I have about my body. And it, it really makes me feel better because it takes me away from those strong feelings. And maybe even developing an eating disorder identity gives me a sense of control. So that's what makes me unique. That's what makes me special. And so we see all of these different ways of coping to get this short-term relief from everything that's going on that then develop into some pretty uh, dangerous and just very scary behaviors that sometimes are hard to get out of. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. As you were talking, I was thinking, I kind of, you know, if, I, if I'm sort of holding what you're saying in my hands like a prism, I'm sort of turning it around a little bit and, and reflecting on the, the, you know, the brain research that's been done in the last five to 10 years and how that helps inform our understanding of all of this. And you're absolutely right. Eating disorders are so complex and multifaceted that as we, as we look at that and think, well, it's really clear when you look at that research that there are some people who are are genetically predisposed to to have an eating disorder if all of the other kind of factors are lined up. And so I think I often think about this because when I hear when I hear us as as clinicians and I and I and I say similar things as as what you've said that the that the eating disorder becomes this coping mechanism and it and it serves to help people feel like just like you're saying like okay I'm aligning this social pressure and these messages and this eating disorder gives me this way to do that. I think the brain science gives us this fascinating other view of that to say that feeling of soothing that comes from eating the eating disorder behaviors only happens for some kids, right? Like lots of adults and a lot of kids try dieting and restricting their food intake and all of that. And it only sticks for some people, right? It only actually becomes an eating disorder for some people. For most of us, it just goes on and, and we, we let go of those dieting ideas or we move on to the next thing. But for those kids that end up with an eating disorder and those adults, I'm always fascinated by how the brain science is starting to help us to understand why. You know, why is it those kids and how is that reinforcing? Because the brain's experience of the food restriction is soothing, not distressing, like it would be to most people when we don't get enough to eat. And that that experience of not eating enough as soothing really does serve to reinforce, I think, the teen or the adult sort of anxiety and wondering if I'm, if I'm doing it right and if this is the right thing. And if they feel that neurobiological soothing, it reinforces on itself to make it feel like, oh, yeah, this is actually going to help me to feel better in this tumultuous time I live in. So I, I, I think sort of long story short, what I'm saying is the, um, this perspective of when we look at it from the outside and it seems like an eating disorder is kind of helping this person in a way to have this identity or to cope in a certain way. It's fascinating to me how the brain is reinforcing these behaviors and making them feel helpful 
versus what can sometimes I think sound to people like we're saying somebody would go out would like choose to have an eating disorder in order to cope, or they would apply an eating disorder to cope. And we, you know, we know that that's not how it works. People sort of find themselves in the throes of an eating disorder without ever intending to find themselves there. So I love what you're saying about all of this identity formation, plus all of the neurobiological research that we have on people with eating disorders now and and will continue to have that really helps to deepen our understanding of these illness and this, of these illnesses in this sort of interesting way. And how do we help people to really incorporate that into how they shape their identity and recovery, right? Because we're, we're really helping them to heal and move through this and find different ways to express themselves and feel soothed and cope and all of those, all those great things. And I, I, when I read your book and think about the work that you're doing, I think this incredible sort of storytelling with visual content that you're speaking to, I would love to have you speak a little bit to how the work that you do with phototherapy and this visual content, how does that play in the therapeutic process of, of shaping our stories and shaping our identities in a way that we can find those, you know, those coping experiences, our brain can experience that soothing in, in different ways so that it, it doesn't have to get that from, from the eating disorder behaviors, but can experience that in new and different ways. Well, and I think when, when I hear you say that, I just, my heart just kind of warms because that is so much what is helping us understand eating disorders and other issues that people struggle with as well. Now we're looking at the neuroscience behind things and we're beginning to understand, oh, okay, so this is what this person is getting out of this. So how do we begin to help them heal through that? And that's why I go back and really think a lot about identity, because if identity is this core factor, and they're using this, this behavior to kind of work through it, either develop this identity or get away from all of the struggles, then now we have to think about, okay, so how do I help them with this, this search as they go through this stage? And the stories are what, what helps us figure out who we are. You know, we need this continuous kind of thread throughout our lives. This is how we put together our lives. And when our lives don't really make sense, then we oftentimes feel at a, at a great loss for any certainty whatsoever. And so a lot of our work, when, if the storytelling is trying to put things in order for people, helping people make sense of their own life. And that's visual now because that's how we tell our stories. In fact, if you think about it now, because of all of these changes that have come across in terms of having images always present. And, you know, when, if we post something, it's always an image now. If somebody tells you, okay, you need to post something for engagement on your social media site, you're not going to go put some lines of text in there. You're going to go in and you're going to put visuals in there because people tell you that's how you get engagement, right? You know, this is how you engage. And so if you go on anything now and you look at your social media, it's, it's all images. So we think in images. So in many ways, we're writing our story in images. And I, I think about it in terms of like, I don't, I couldn't even tell you in terms of technology, how a movie is made nowadays. But, you know, I think about the old method of, of like seeing the long tape and it's got all the little frames in it. And then, you know, when you run it through the projector, um, because I, you know, I actually remember all of that, you know, kind of this you know, having this, or either I've seen it in movies, I don't guess I ever got to go in a back projection room at a movie theater, this seamless story a movie is. And I think sometimes that's how our lives are. 
we really have all these images, whether or not they're actual photos or not. But I think there are more often photos now than ever before because we have so many photos. And so we're running these photos together and that becomes our life. And so when we can help put that in order and help that make sense, it helps us learn, oh, this is me. This is my life. And it's, it's a great way in many ways because I think humans, I mean, we are very visual. I'm a very visual person. I like diagrams. I like graphs. I love photos, obviously. But I want us to think about like, yeah, when we see that, that can be so effective. If I see an old photo, it brings up all these emotions. If I see a photo of somebody I care about, it brings up all these emotions. If I see a photo online, even if it's not somebody I know, but there's something about it that raises emotions in me, it's memorable. And so those are really important things for us to think about in doing this story, because while we're so image laden now, we're very comfortable with images. And so we don't really think about what they do to us. And we really have to really think about, okay, so I have this phone and all of us pretty well have a phone. I mean, when you look at the numbers of people who now have what we call smartphones, those phones that we can take pictures on and we can upload them and we have with, you know, we, we've got them with us all the time. I just rarely don't have my phone. It's kind of attached on the end of our arm. You know, go out in public and you see all these people walking around this thing on the end of their arm that they're staring into or look at, you know, even young children looking into these phones or iPads and all. And so it's so enmeshed with us now that it's really hard for us to determine if what we're seeing is really something that's accurate. What, is this real what I'm seeing or is this something that somebody's created to manipulate me? And I, again, go back and compare that sometimes with something like a painting. You know, if you see a painting somewhere, you know it's just a representation of something. Somebody painted it and they're representing it. And depending on the style, it's going to look more or less like what they are actually representing there or trying to represent. But we think photos accurately represent what is there in the world. Like if I had been there, this is exactly what it would have looked like. Because that's the whole property behind photos, that they, you know, this is what we just take what's out there in the world. And we really believe it represents it accurately. And it doesn't, and it never has. But even as you mentioned with editing, it certainly doesn't now. And so there's this term that really sticks in my mind in terms of photos, and it comes out of that old kind of phototherapy literature I was reading um, way back, and it's talking about the reality trap and talking about because photos are accurate representations in our mind, we believe that they are real. And like you said, we edit them, and we believe that that edited version is real oftentimes. You know, this been going on in advertising forever, and we fall for that. And again, if, if I take a photo, let's say, and I post it online, and people like it, it further deepens the reality trap. Because now my photo has been affirmed. It is real. I mean, what people saw is real, and they like it. But it's also affirmed for the other people that see the likes on the image. And so this whole idea of what's real and and what's not real is very difficult for us to make out. But when we begin to work with it and we think about, okay, so how can I help people, all people, but I think especially those people who are influenced very heavily by social media. Um, And for me, it's, it's oftentimes those clients who are coming to me for difficulties with eating disorders because so many of them do. I really 
go in very early on and ask them about their social media use because it's not going to go away. I think we're going to have social media. I have no idea what it's going to look like. I can't even begin to predict technology, but I think it's going to be around and we're so comfortable with it that we need to gain this cultural awareness of what it does to us. We need to understand how easily we can get pulled in and believe something. And so, so much of that work with images is about trying to go back and help people become really good consumers of social media. And that is, is saying, okay, can I look at this image and can I go underneath the surface? Can I be very alert to how I'm relating to it? Am I mindlessly interacting with it or can, can I be mindful of what I am thinking about it and what I think it's telling me? So images are really about that very quick emotional reaction. You know, words, we read them, we're actually using more logical parts of our brain, but images hit us very hard. And the neuroscience behind that explains why that is. When we see an image, we, it is bypassed that logical part. And so what we're trying to do is help people we're working with to get that space to be able to step back from that image and think about what, what kind of thoughts am I having about this? What is this bringing up for me? And so when, when I do phototherapy with clients, I'm really trying to help them explore the meanings behind these images, whether or not they're just viewing them or whether or not they've taken them, because it's their meaning that's important. It doesn't matter what I think about those images. It's what they're taking out of them. And, and I always go back to that and, and really look at and try to get them to examine that in depth. So in many ways, what we're trying to do when we're doing this is helping them decode what those images are saying for them, for them specifically. So can I go in here and figure out, okay, why does this image hit me? Or why did I take this photo this way and want to post it? Because oftentimes what happens is if there's an image that expresses a very deep or innermost desire, we're convinced that it's all real. And so there's so much work to be do, done there with our clients uh, to reduce the power of those images over them. And I, you know, I go back and think about like what we do in therapy. Oftentimes we have to bring this insider awareness that something is occurring, that it's happening. And it's only with that, that we can begin to change our reactions to it. And so that's where I think this storytelling is putting this story in order and helping these clients go in and look at, at their story that they really are in many ways expressing through visual means. And what does your story say? And what do you want it to say? What are you trying to say with it? And so through that work, oftentimes, what we see is these, these kind of aha moments. Oh, I never thought about that. When I took that, I never thought about that. That is so fascinating. I, I was really, a very absorbing part of your book was the, you, you have case examples of how these photo techniques can be applied uh, with, the, with individuals that, you know, as, as examples that, sort of show how you would do this. I would love it if you would maybe pick pick one of those to walk us through how, uh, you know, sort of briefly how those, the activities that you would do, whether it's like the exploring family photos piece or the self-reflection log or uh, revisiting images, one of those pieces that you talk about so beautifully in the book and just walk us through one of those as an overview of kind of how 
a trained professional might implement these techniques in phototherapy? Oh, yeah, I would love to do that. And I will tell you, I enjoy working with all types of photos. So it, it doesn't matter if we're looking at something that's on social media, because I still do have clients that oftentimes bring photos in, like family photos. And I love working with family photos. But I really think I would rather talk about working with something on social media, because I think that's so much more relevant now for a lot of people. You know, the family albums are still back there somewhere hiding out in everybody's closet or cabinet somewhere. But social media is just where it's all at. And so many of our young people now never print a photo. Uh, You know, they don't, there's not, they don't make albums anymore. And so I think when I think about a lot of the work is oftentimes in the work of like self portrayals or what we now call selfies. And I got really interested in selfies because I was just seeing so many of them brought in and some of them had been posted, some of them weren't, but it's so much tied in with the identity search because it's like, you know, who am I and how am I, how am I being presented here? How am I trying to present myself? And so I I think um, when I think back to the book and writing it, um, one of my clients that I was working with in there was a young woman who took an enormous amount of selfies and selfies were very important to her. She, you know, probably took selfies every day. And so beginning to explore the selfies and what they mean for that person, what they're trying to express can be done so easily because we can just ask them these questions that make them begin to explore different aspects of the process of taking the the selfie and hosting the selfie. And so oftentimes it would just be looking at the selfie. Uh, Sometimes it's an assignment I might give them, you know, so let's take a selfie every day this week. And then next week when you come back, we're going to kind of go through the week. But it might also be a selfie that they just bring in because they've posted it or they like it. And so the the processes are very much the same. It doesn't have to be unique to how the selfie was used. But I will ask some questions. You know, I might, I might ask them something like, this, this selfie is different from this one. How did you choose this one that you wanted to post? Because oftentimes they'll have a whole bunch on the camera roll, right? How did you make the decision that this is the one you wanted to post? And what I'm trying to get them to do is be able to just explore, like, what were the factors that made me think this was the best one? And so I'll ask very open-ended questions as they go through that. Maybe a question like, did this one come out like you wanted? You know, are you happy with it? What do you like about this selfie? So it's a lot of questions. Sometimes I will even kind of move the selfie out from them and I will say, huh, when you look at this person, could you tell me a story about them? You know, it kind of frees them would be a way to think about it, just to make up a story that is probably very accurate, but maybe that would be harder for them to say, I did this, I thought this but let me tell you a story about this person, but it's actually them. So oftentimes selfies can be used in that way. I will try to get at feelings because we can ask a lot of questions that can lead them to think about like, what am I feeling when I look at this? So I may even ask them questions like, what do you feel in your body when you look at this selfie? You know, what, what's coming up for you? I love that. I love the idea of, of this concept of asking that, you know, what story would you tell about this person as sort of a, a, an off to the side? Or what story would you imagine other people would tell about this person as a way to really 
get at that identity question that we, sort of that place that we started, that, that what we imagine our identity to be can be really different than what other people imagine it to be. And I also think from a, you know, I was also thinking when you're talking about selfies that, you know, depending on your intention with the selfie, whether you are taking a selfie to send to somebody because you're out for a hike and you sure wish they were with you. And so you take a picture of yourself in the, the background of the hike to share with somebody and say, gee, you know, this is what I'm doing. I wish you were here versus taking a selfie that is in your estimation going to express who you are because you're going to post it on a social channel that is really about expressing who you are and opening yourself up to that interaction with other people that's that's very quick and, and in many ways immediately responsive. It's fascinating to think about the many ways that you could even use that that one lovely example of it's a could be a one-to-one conversation with the selfie that you're sending to one person, or it could be open to the whole world. So I can only imagine that and, and actually I I can cheat and say I know because I've read I read your book and I can I can attest to the fact that that readers will see a lot of ways that these different activities could go and really tying back to that identity formation of where it is now, how it got there, and and what you want it to be. And I think that's maybe to round out our our conversation. I I think that that's a fascinating part of this is that the work that you're doing through phototherapy can I think really help people to aid their ongoing identity formation and exploration and and equip them with tools to not only understand where they are now, but really look into the future and see where they might want to go and who they might want to be portraying themselves as and how that contributes to their identity formation and, and exploration. So maybe in a in a in an encapsulated view, what do you see as as maybe the sort of, you know, top two or three benefits to using these kind of therapeutic means to help people aid their identity formation or explore within the, this context? But that is is a really interesting question because I think that there's phototherapy work that is actually focused on individual doing more individual work, maybe not in a therapeutic setting. Um, my book is really designed for therapists who are working with individuals and directly with those with eating disorders, although it's really much more applicable to anybody that is dealing with the identity search here, which is a lot of our clients. But um, I think some of the most important things that we can get through that is this something that you said, this brought this up so clearly to me that it's about the future too, because a lot of our identity is about connecting our past with where we are now and where we want to be. And there are people who are saying, you know, if, if we really want to have a solid identity, we have to know there's a future. And that's, that's something that oftentimes individuals don't have when they're very confused and they're struggling with things. So I think that's one of the huge benefits of doing that. I think it really can also help people be much more aware of what's going on with them underneath in terms of, okay, when I'm seeing these things, what what am I feeling? And, And that's a huge component of the work with eating disorder clients, helping them get in touch with and even knowing, okay, this is what I'm experiencing. Can I, can I name it? Can I even figure out what it is, which is we do a lot of work and training on that. And then can I determine how I would like to address that? And so there's just so many different ways you can go with that in terms of the photos. And so, for example, like working with an eating disorder client, the phototherapy work is present. It's not obviously near all of what we do. It's a, it's a way to begin to address some of these particular issues 
But I think in many areas, it's helpful to all of us to think about our identity and what we're expressing. And that's the feedback I've gotten so far from a lot of people in the books is like, wow, I don't even do this kind of work or I'm not a therapist, but it sure is making me think about the way I interact with images today. Absolutely. I think that's a beautiful, a beautiful uh, sentiment of the things that we do with clients in our practices are we're doing them because they're excellent things for humans to do with other humans and, and humans to do on our own as in an, in our own work. So it's a it's a beautiful highlight of how the very things that we're teaching and working with clients on are are the things many times that we find so rewarding ourselves. We're not so different from our clients, right? We're all people in this identity search kind of together. We just have different different paths in it. Shauna, this has been so fascinating. Where can people learn more about you and your work and your book if they want to, to keep going deeper in this? Uh, my website is drfrisbee.com. So that is D-R-F-R-I-S-B-I-E.com. And um, also my book is available on all the major retailers. Um, it's published by Norton, so it's on their site, but they have a lot of links there, but also just any of the book retailers have it available. Fabulous. Thank you so much for being here, for spending some time with us and talking about these just really interesting areas for us to keep thinking about. Thank you so much. You are welcome. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you for having me, Julian. You're welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the EMILY program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emily Program. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.